Yeah, that Taylor Swift song just gave me like goodbye Earl vibes, like Dixie Chicks. It it is right up there in the uh, true crime community, and mm-hmm. I actually have to. Is it on Spotify? Can I add it to my playlist? I think it should be. I don't use Spotify, so I'm not sure. It is on Spotify, so okay. I added it to my playlist for anyone who wants to know. It's called Nobody No Crime. Yes, by Taylor Swift. And it is a true crime lover's um, song of the year. There you go. I'm not like the hugest fan of Taylor Swift, but that's a really, I like that song. It's a good song. It's a, it's phenomenal song. That's not to say I don't like Taylor Swift. She's good. I just. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Hello, I am Grace and that is Rachel. I'm Rachel and that is Grace and thank you for joining us again because yes, yes, I assume yes. you are a repeat listener. I could be wrong, but you know. If not, it's myths and misfortunes. You'll figure it out along the way. There's a lot of misfortunes, yeah. <laughs> especially this year that's almost over. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so we're... Where, where are we this week? Today, we are in British Columbia, Ooh. Canada. Oh, I just did a blanket um, British Columbia because... You know, that's fine. We're literally across the province from each other, so... We're also going to be coming back. Yeah, so I figured if we came back, then um, you said you want to do Vancouver, so mm-hmm. we could just do... I would one of us whoever did it would just do like specifically on Vancouver so there's actually two cases in Vancouver so if I want to cover one you can also cover one yeah then I I good cases just left it out of this history which by the way is one of my longest histories in a while um it's like three pages it's because we're hitting a heavy spot yeah yeah it's always harder when you do like an entire like state or province or country or something like yeah. that so. yeah it's not like cities like oh it was incorporated this state um not right. a lot has happened in the past 2000 years but you know right <laughs> so um there there's some stuff that I ended up having to leave out but for the most part I hopefully did a good job there were some things that I touched on heavily and other things I had to like just not even touch yeah yeah so my sources are britannica.com which i barely used wikipedia which had a lot more solid info than i thought um pages.vassar.edu vassar vassar okay and warpaths to peacepipes.com nice agreed at the time european explorers arrived in the area there were around like 80,000 indigenous people of different tribes living in the area who Mm -hmm. spoke more than 30 different languages. These tribes had developed an economy based on utilizing what they got, well, closer to the shore 
they developed an economy based on utilizing what they got from the sea and the cedar trees that were growing in the mountains, whether it be for like tools or fishing or building their homes. The abundance of natural resources enabled the development of like a complex hierarchical society within a coastal community. So like basically with so much food being available, the people of like the coastal regions could focus their time like on art and politics and stuff like that. Well, not politics, but art. Yay. Yeah. But they were also already trading copper, blankets, elk hides, furs, like shells, candle fish oil, and and more along like intertribal routes. Nice, 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 nice. In the late 18th century, Spanish ships visited the coast in 1774, followed by the British explorer James Cook, who was searching for the Northwest Passage. And I didn't look up what that was. I, I meant to, but I, I forgot. But and now you've got. Oh, you're curious. gonna look it up. <laughs> yeah. Northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage is a sea route between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Alrighty then pretty pretty straightforward okay yeah um but he anchored in friendly cove modern day nootka sound and the arrival of europeans began to intensify in the mid 18th century as fur traders entered the area to harvest sea otters the navigator george vancouver circumnavigated what was later called vancouver island and charted the mainland's intricate coastline spain and britain fought for control over the area but it Spain eventually left in 1795 after the Nootka Sound Conventions, which were a series of agreements between Spain and Britain that Mm -hmm. were signed in the 1790s that basically helped to avert war between them over territory disputes. Mm -hmm. After years of conflict between Britain and the United States, the southern boundary of Canada was fixed in 1846 and Vancouver Island was recognized as solely British territory was fixed as in they like had a set boundary yeah okay because I was like fixed what was wrong with it (laughs) America that's what's wrong yeah that's pretty much it yeah the gold strike of 1858 in the Caribou Mountains made Fort Victoria into a city and was proclaimed the colony of British Columbia Gold seekers from California, Australia, and other parts of the Pacific community joined with British and Canadian migrants to work the alluvial gold deposits in the lower Fraser River, and then later um, on the upper Fraser River. Mm -hmm. July 20th, 1871, uh, the British Columbia became the sixth province to join Canada. Throughout the later half of the 19th century, the the province built its economy on fishing, forestry and farming which led to a booming economy and new cities and settlers yeah obviously the main city that you think of there is vancouver um but like i said we're coming back here so i'm not gonna say much about it during this period the province had a lot of chinese uh, and japanese immigrants who made coastal sediments and indian immigrants began sailing to british columbia in the following years then would help develop a logging industry um founding mill towns like paldi on vancouver island but even though they helped build up society that doesn't mean they were treated fairly and i'll get into that later okay so something i didn't mention earlier is that the first nations people had a rich social life based on the potlatch ceremony in which members of the community would give blankets food jewelry and other favors to guests 
often inviting them from hundreds of miles away to mark like birth, adolescence, marriage, exchanging of titles and privileges or, or death mm-hmm. of an important member of the tribe. A potlatch ceremony included like a feast, singing and dancing with costumed masks and masked dancers. Some, some of them took a year to plan and lasted as long as three weeks. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow, but also kind of sad. Cause like a year to plan like a death, think that you're like mourning. I know, a death yeah. For a year. Well, it's even worse because in 1885, the Canadian government outlawed these ceremonies. No. Because Christian missionaries feared oh, the pagan implications of these ceremonies and the government felt threatened because basically, like the distribution of wealth, it, it seemed anti capitalist to mm-hmm. them. So they're like, nah. True enforcement of the law began in 1913, and the number of arrests for potlatching increased dramatically, but individuals could receive lesser sentences if they pledged to stop engaging in potlatching or handed over potlatch paraphernalia, such as masks, whistles, um, cedar bark regalia, and copper. Over 750 objects were confiscated, and the Canadian Department of Indian Affairs paid a total of $1,485 for more than $35,000 worth of objects. And most of these items were like given or sold to museums or individuals for display, Mm -hmm. not given back to the tribes that they belong to. Yeah, that is a really big problem with um, a lot of Native American studies because a lot of the artifacts that they take, they send to museums or sell to museums and it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't go back to the tribe. Exactly. And um, like many indigenous groups continue to practice potlatch ceremonies in secret. And in 1951, the section making potlatch ceremonies illegal was deleted from Canadian law. Some native tribes say they would have preferred a repeal, which would have brought a lot more public attention to the issue. And they're still fighting to get their ancestral belongings back from the government. And the government's basically decided that it's up to First Nations people to prove that the items were stolen. And even if they do, there's so much that they have to go through in order mm-hmm. to get them. It's fucked. Going back a bit, um, I found out, I didn't realize uh, that other countries had a prohibition. What? Yeah, British Columbia also had a prohibition. Was um, it, wait, was it the same time as ours? Because I know a lot of... No. Okay. It was right before. It was from 1917 to 1921. And it only ended because by 1921, they realized that, I mean, through like a thriving black market and a lot of like, a lot of people were being arrested and it was often like class and race based and mm-hmm. there was a lot of corruption and then they realized that alcohol could make them a shit ton of money oh no shit really (sighs) yeah (laughs) right like really shocking u.s prohibition in the 1920s and early 1930s led to a thriving business of producing and smuggling alcohol to the u.s from british columbia oh yeah and actually a lot of vancouver's richest families built or consolidated their fortunes in the rum running business Actually, one one of my favorite Christmas movies, Christmas movies, has a guy who dies when he comes back from rum running. 
oh dear what what movie is this oh no it's just like the very beginning of the movie it's like how he became a ghost it's called spirit of christmas i've seen this movie that's how he died that's how he died wow okay um (laughs) so there was a lot i had to leave out because this got so long like how at one point in the 19th century there was a head tax imposed on the chinese which basically meant that they had to pay to enter the country oh that so and it got up to 500 dollars per person at one point and then there was i like how i was going to say oh that's dumb but it's literally something that happens now yeah yeah it that's it's what you have dumb. to do for to, to be here legally it's what you have to do yeah even if you're literally a refugee and it, it's yeah. locked up it is. um yeah. anyway um there was also the chinese immigration act and an amended immigration act for Im- immigrants from india that was fairly similar that where their fee their head tax was like 200 dollars, which was still a lot back then yes one of the first pronouncements of Stephen Harper upon his victory of the 39th general election to Parliament in Ottawa was that proper redress would be afforded to the payers of the Chinese head tax. So on June 22, 2006, he offered an apology and $20,000 compensation for the head tax once paid by Chinese immigrants. I don't know if that money went to, if they like spread it out between like if they had a record of who paid and they spread it out that way or if it went somewhere specific i don't know but there's so much more that i wanted to add and sometimes i wish this was more of a history podcast so i could just talk about all of the fucked up things we were never taught because people just want it swept under the rug and, yeah. and this is a bit of a mess but that was british columbia <laughs> I, I, I also did not know that there was a prohibition in Canada because... Yeah, I didn't either. Because I don't know what, if it was specific to British Columbia or if it was, like... Canada in general. Yeah. Because, like, you know about the prohibition here and how it was such a big thing. Right. And I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that nothing is taught in the U.S. outside of the U.S. Yeah. But also, I feel like that's important to know that our country is not the only one who did it stupidly. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I love how that's, that's what I picked up on. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that's what I was most surprised about. There was actually a really interesting story that I wanted to add about um, there were all of these um, like Punjabi Sikhs and Muslims and mm-hmm. um, they came on the ship there were like 300 of them or something but only a very small number of them were allowed to enter the country so for like a long while they were all just staying on the ship until they could try to figure out a way to get into the country and they were basically just rejected i mean that's definitely something that still unfortunately is happening today and it was just Yeah, no, I know what you mean. So moving on from history, my story this week is about Robert Willie, that's his nickname, Picton. Although in the course of like all my sources, they use several different nicknames for him. Bob, Rob, I hate that. Willie. It's horrible. So my sources, the sources that I'm speaking of, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, criminalminds.fandom.com, Washington Post.com. 
Right. Why is there a fandom.com article? I love how it's criminal minds. .fandom.com. Uh-huh. That is actually something I did not mention at the end of this. Um, the story is actually mentioned in criminal minds one oh, episode really? yes just one episode very briefly and i can't remember what part but it is mentioned very briefly dailyhive.com and all that's interesting.com robert william picton was born on october 24th 1949 in Port Coquitlam, british columbia he was born into a third generation of pick farmers you know good living. Due to Canadian publicity laws regarding um, the ongoing criminal investigations, not a lot is known about his early years. Oh wait, this is ongoing? It's still ongoing. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, like it's it's not ongoing, but it is ongoing. Okay, like they're still trying to gather more information. Correct, yes. Um, he and his siblings, David Francis Picton and Linda Louise Wright, inherited the property after their mother passed away in April of 1979. Per- personal opinion, not like for, for sure. Her passing likely caused some trauma in Picton because according to police interviews, he was, he was really close to his mother. Oh. Like he was really close. In 1994 and 95, the siblings sold off parts of the land for a total of $5.16 million. Whoa. Yeah. Unfortunately, after they sold off part of the land, the brothers then began neglecting the normal farm duties and registered as a nonprofit charity with the Canadian government. They named the charity the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. Oh. And claim uh. to organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, sport, sports organizations, and other worthy groups. Okay, okay, okay. These events, of course, included the coolest of raves and wild parties featuring sex workers from Vancouver and were hosted at a converted slaughterhouse on the property. Oh, dear. That's where I want to (laughs) party. These parties attracted as many as 2,000 people, which doesn't seem like a lot, but to be fair, I've never been to a rave, so I personally don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It could be normal. I've I've also also never been to a rave. The only thing I know about raves or what I've seen on TV shows, and that's probably inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On March 23rd, 1997, Picton found himself in the emergency room with stab wounds after an altercation with a sex worker named Wendy Lynn Eichstetter. Dang. Mm -hmm. Wendy was in a neighboring emergency room recovering from lacerations due to this altercation. Oh. According to the police report filed by Wendy, Picton had handcuffed her and had begun stabbing at her. She Holy managed shit. She managed to disarm him, stabbing him with his own weapon and got away. While handcuffed? While well, only one wrist oh, okay, was handcuffed. Okay. Like he was trying to handcuff her and oh, Okay. Holy <laughs> yeah. crap. 
Later in the emergency room, nurses used a key found in Picton's pocket to unlock the handcuff attached to Wendy's wrist. I feel like that'd be some pretty damning evidence. You'd think. Picton was charged with attempted murder and the clothes and shoes he was wearing that night were taken into evidence and left in a storage locker. Picton was then let off on a $2,000 bond. The charges were later dismissed in January of 1998 because prosecutors believed that the woman's drug addiction made her testimony too unstable. I hate that. Fun times. A few months later, the Pictons were sued by Port Coquitlam officials for violating the zoning ordinances of their farm. Mm. Because, you know, this is a farm, not a party place. Why are you having parties? Ma'am. Yeah, she she said for real. <laughs> why are you having parties? Why did you like re- why did you redo this entire barn so it's just like a concrete slab and some walls? Why'd you do that? Honestly, that's not like a totally awful idea because no, it's not <laughs> far away, it's out of the way if somebody wanted to do some like crazy shit. Right. And I think that was honestly like the logic behind it and it's not a bad idea for like if you want to have a party Mm -hmm. but you have you still unfortunately have to file or file follow the zoning ordinances like if if you're going to have this be a legitimate business yes thank you i was like what am i trying to find if you want this to be a legitimate business you have to have the property rezoned Right. As screwy as that is, because it's your property, you should be able to do what you want. Obviously, there are some things that you should not do, but (laughs) yes. Anyway, they ignored this legal pressure and held a New Year's Eve party in 1998. This was then met with court orders banning future parties and authorizing police to arrest any person attending future events on the farm. Oh, of course, their nonprofit status was removed the following year because, <laughs> you know, they're not following the laws. Yeah. Um, then I guess Picton goes about his normal job, slaughtering pigs, as pig farmers do, um, along with a few odd ones that he mentions, such as a salvage business of junked cars with his brother. Basically, they pull apart cars and anything they think is worth enough yeah i mean there is a place um here where they do basically the same oh definitely thing. oh definitely yeah it's a it's a great business um something that he said in the police interview is that a lot of the cars that they got mm-hmm. were cars that had been released from police custody that were not claimed oh so in one instance he found a bloodied axe underneath this back seat of the car and he took this into his workshop because for some reason he wanted to keep the axe and use it i don't know what the fuck i would turn that into the police common sense but you know some people don't have that okay so one of the farmhand workers named bill hiscox over the course of three years began to notice that some of the sex workers who came to visit the farm eventually went missing shock shock so surprising then on february 6 2002 police executed a search warrant 
for illegal firearms on the property. I don't know why, it didn't really say why, but for illegal firearms. When personal items belonging to some of the missing women from the British Columbia Missing Women investigation were found on the Pictet farm, it was of course taken into custody and a second court order was obtained in order to search the entire farm. The following day, Picton was charged with storing and owning a firearm without proper licensing, which is illegal in most places, mm-hmm. I believe. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that's illegal in most places. He was later released, but kept under police surveillance. The clothing that the police took into custody back in 1997 was then pulled from storage and had DNA tests run against those of the missing women. Oh. Because of what they found on the property and these DNA tests, Picton was then arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder and the deaths of Serena Abbotsweet and Mona Wilson on February 22nd, 2002. Over the course of the next year and a half, investigations continued on the farm, costing the government nearly $70 million in manpower and machinery. Excavations ended in November of 2003, and the property is currently fenced off under a lien by the Crown in right of British Columbia, and all buildings have been demolished. Oh. If that doesn't tell you how serious this investigation was. Holy crap. Yeah. And that's why there's not a whole lot of information, unfortunately. According to my sources, forensic evidence at the time was difficult to obtain because the bodies of the victims might have been left to decompose or were even allowed to be eaten by the pigs pigs. on the farm. Yeah. During early days of the investigation, heavy equipment such as two 50-foot conveyor belts and soil sifters were used in order to find trace amounts of evidence. Oh, dang. And that's not cheap. Oh. Then on March 10th, it was revealed that human flesh may have been ground up and mixed with pork from the farm. Thankfully, thankfully, this was not distributed out commercially only to friends and family who were visiting the farm, which is equally disturbing. Oh, no. But it wasn't commercially distributed, thankfully. By May 26, 2005, there were 27 total charges of first-degree murder against Robert Picton. Obviously, Serena and Mona were the first two. Then there's Jacqueline McDonald, Diane Rock, Heather Bottomley, Andrea Jonesbury, Brenda Wolf, Georgia Payne, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, Sherry Irving, Inga Hall, Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Koski, Sarah Devry, Cynthia Felix, Angelina Jardine, Wendy Crawford, Jennifer Firminger, Heather Chinock, uh, Tanya Hollick, Diana Melnick, and one person who they could not identify. How many was that? 27. Fuck. And this makes this case the largest of any serial killer in Canadian history. Shit. His trial began on January 30th, 2006, where he pled not guilty 
to all 27 charges. It took most of that year to determine what evidence would be shown to the jury and reporters were not allowed to disclose any of the material whatsoever to the public, to the jury, to anyone. On March 2nd, it was determined that one of the 27 counts would be removed from the charges due to lack of evidence. This was, you know, of course, the Jane Doe because they couldn't, they just couldn't that's, find anything. That's, ah, uh, that yeah. bothers me. Then on August 9th, Justice Williams decided that splitting the charges into a group of six counts and a group of 20 counts based on the differences in evidence would be a great idea and more likely to prove a result in a shorter amount of time. Mm -hmm. However, full details as to the actual reason for this decision has not been released to the public yet. I wonder <clears throat> if there was just more evidence for one group than the other. Probably, but that was also probably not the full reason behind the decision. Hmm. Jury selection was finally completed on December 12th, 2006, and the date for the trial was initially set to start January 8th, 2007, but it was then delayed to January 27th, so not that far past the original date. During this trial, Picton faced first-degree murder charges in the death of Marnie Frey, Serena Abitsui, Georgine Georgia Pappen. Actually, I think my sources were mixing up the names. Um, so it's either George, Georgia Payne or Georgina Pappen. Mm. So uh, Georgina Payne Pappen, Andrea Josberry, Brenda Wolf, and Mona Wilson. In the Crown's opening statement, the Crown counsel Daryl Previtt finally revealed to the jury and the public what evidence was found on Picton's farm. There were skulls. This is like super disturbing. There were skulls that had been cut in half with their hands and feet stuffed inside. What? The remains of another victim were found stuffed in a garbage bag in the bottom of a trash can. And her bloodied clothes were then found within the trailer that Picton lived in. What the fuck? Part of one of the victim's jaw and teeth were found buried in the ground next to the slaughterhouse. And... This is super weird. A 22 caliber revolver with a dildo attached to the top that contained both Picton's and his victim's DNA was found in his laundry room. Oh, what the fuck? In a videotape recording of the police interview that was shown to the jury, Picton claims to have attached the dildo to the revolver as a makeshift silencer when gunning down the pigs prior to taking them to the slaughterhouse. Um, mm. Yes. I feel like there are simpler ways. <laughs> there are 100% simpler ways. Yeah. Other evidence presented at a later date to the jury include the previously mentioned dildo attached to the revolver um, with one round fired out of that revolver. Oh. Boxes of a 357 Magnum handgun ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of faux fur lined handcuffs, a syringe with three milliliters of blue liquid inside, oh. and a Spanish fly aphrodisiac. What the fuck? So this blue liquid, a videotape of one of Picton's friends, Scott Chubb, claimed that Picton had told him 
a good way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid. His friend didn't think that was weird? There's a lot, basically a lot of people come forward after he's arrested. A second tape with an associate of Picton's named Andrew Bellwood claimed that Picton had mentioned killing prostitutes and handcuffing and strangling them, then bleeding and gutting them before feeding them to the pigs. Other than that, there were also photos of the contents of the garbage can, which was found in Picton's slaughterhouse, which contained the remains of Mona Wilson. There is also a tape of Picton while in custody, and I did watch this. Picton was speaking with an undercover cop in his jail cell and saying that he wanted to do one more kill to make his body count an even 50, but he got sloppy. In fact, the exact quote is, I was going to do one more, making an even 50. That's why I was sloppy. I wanted one more. Make make the big 5-0. What the fuck? And they only found 27? And they only found 27. Oh, shit. Despite all of this, on December 9th, 2007, the jury returned with the verdict that Pipton was not guilty of first-degree oh. murder in the six charges. What the fuck? but that he is guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. Oh. This conviction in Canada carries a lifetime sentence with no possibility for parole between 10 and 25 years. Two days later, on December 11th, the British Columbia court judge sentenced Picton to life imprisonment with no possibility for parole for 25 years, which is the maximum punishment for second-degree murder and equal to what would have been imposed for a first-degree murder charge. Despite appeals from both the Crown and Picton's attorneys, this ruling stood true. Like, they both were like, yeah, no, there's a couple things that were missed, but no. This ruling stayed life imprisonment 25 years before he's available for parole. Up to August 4th, 2010, Picton was held at a provincial uh, pre-trial institution in Port Coquitlam. He was then moved to a federal penitentiary. After Pickman's arrest, apparently a lot of people came forward about what was happening at the farm. One woman, Lynn Ellingson, claimed to have seen Picton skinning a woman hanging from a meat hook. What the fuck? She said that she didn't tell anyone out of fear for her life, which is very justifiable seeing that. Yeah, yeah. it's the other ones that you said um, eventually came forward afterwards yeah. who were friends with him who didn't say anything. Who didn't say anything, that, yeah. That, like, really bother me. Yeah. The children of, the, of these missing and murdered women filed a civil lawsuit in May of 2013 against the Vancouver Police Department for failing to protect the victims when his crimes were previously brought up in 1997. A settlement was re- was reached where each child would be compensated $50,000 without admission of liability. Hmm. Some good news though, a woman who was initially on the missing women's list in British Columbia 
turned up before the trial was held. So her name was removed from the suspected woman who disappeared while. Okay. That's good. Yeah. While with Picton. So something that happened kind of recently, but also not really recently, that was controversial for good reason. A book was released that claimed to have been written by Picton. What? He apparently got his manuscript out of prison by passing it to a cellmate who then sent it to a friend of his who typed it up and self-published the 144-page book. That's gross. Petitions were created and signed instantly to get this book removed from all book-selling platforms such as Amazon.com. It was on Amazon? It was on Amazon. And this was 2016, I believe. I tried to put as little information about this book as possible because I was like, I don't want people to look for this. I think I remember hearing about this. Yes. The publisher ceased publication after the public outcry and asked Amazon to remove it from their website, which they did. Wow. Um, You know, since, since an incarcerated criminal wrote the book and not the person who was listed as the author unfortunately according to one of the sources it is still available on barnes and noble but (gasps) what yeah barnes and noble what are you doing but i don't know how accurate that is because i did not look it up just because i did not want any kind of hits for that book to pop up in google i just i did not want that damn so that is the story of robert picton the worst canadian serial killer Holy and shit. just another reminder this case is not completely public so any new so like new information might come out that, dang Isn't i think i had fun? heard that one on another one but i didn't remember like any of that. all i remembered was the um was the fact that he was a pig farmer you heard it on My Favorite Murder because oh, okay. I listened to My Favorite Murder like a year ago and this case has stuck out to me. Dang. Yeah. And I think it was Georgia who was reading it. <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. I don't <laughs> barely remember. What is your story? My story is over in Vancouver. Kind Not of that far? Like near there. Um, yeah. It's Ogopogo. Ogopogo. Yes. So my sources are ogopogoquest.com, tourismkelona.com, wikipedia, bbc.com, and globalnews.ca. Oh, wow. BBC? Yes. Okanagan Lake is the largest of five interconnected freshwater fjord lakes in Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. It was named after the First Nations people who first inhabited the area, and it was created when melting glaciers flooded a valley 10,000 years ago, and it stretches for over 80 miles, and the maximum depth is 762 feet, so big enough um, for a water monster. So the lake is definitely big enough for a lake monster yes yeah um oh wait have i heard the story maybe i don't know the origins of the name ogopogo it's not like 
completely clear. Some sources say that in August 1926, while at a rotary lunch held on the shores of Okanagan Lake, W.H. Brimblecombe decided to break out in song uh, with a popular British musical hit. He sang, I'm looking for the Ogopogo, the bunny-hugging Ogopogo. His mother was an earwig, his father was a whale. I'm going to put a little bit of salt on his tail. I'm looking for the Ogopogo. Yeah. The um, bunny hugging. I know. But there was another source that said that the song was his father was an earwig, his oh, my bad. His mother was an earwig, his father was a whale, a little bit of head and hardly any tail, and Ogopogo was his name. So a sturgeon. Well. <laughs> We're into the theories, right? The sturgeon. The creature is also sometimes called Augie. Yeah, and sometimes there are like smaller creatures that have been seen that are called Ogo pups. Oh, I know. Pups. Hold on. I want to see a picture of Augie. I've actually got a couple of different. um... Why do I get a bunch of humans and not some weird serpentine creature? Did you look up Ogo Pogo? I looked up Augie. Yeah, that's that's your issue. Oh, so, looks like the Loch Ness monster. It's been described as like a multi-humped serpentine beast with green or black skin and the head of either a horse, snake, or sheep. That's yeah. a lot of variation. Things. Yeah, yeah. According to skeptical author Benjamin Radford, the Ogopogo is more closely tied to native myths than any other lake monster. I'm going to preface this by saying this is what's on Wikipedia. Do not take this to heart because it is not accurate. Also, it's Wikipedia. But also, Wikipedia does tend to have a lot of good information. They do, but in this case, no. But I want you to know what people have said about it. Mm, Okay. So, Wikipedia says it's Equipmec and Silex natives regarded the creature or which they call multiple names such as Nahaha Itku or Nahaha Itk or Naitaka as an evil, no, (laughs) (laughs) as an evil supernatural entity with great power and ill intent, which isn't true. The word Nahaha Itk has various translations such as water demon, which is where they kind of it's not or water god or sacred creature of the water and according also according to wikipedia knight aka demanded a live sacrifice for safe crossing of the lake and that for 400 for hundreds of years first nations would sacrifice small animals before entering the water and that oral tradition often described visiting chief tim basket who rejected the required sacrifice refuting the existence of the demon Upon entering uh, the lake on a canoe with his family, the Naitaka whipped up the surface of the lake with his long tail, and the canoe and its occupants were sucked to the bottom of the lake. Oh, shit. The Naitaka was often described as using its tail to create fierce storms to drown victims. For instance, in 1855, settler John McDougall claimed that his horses were sucked down into the water and um, nearly his canoe before he cut the line. 
And all of that's wrong. I mean, that did happen to John McDougal, but the rest of it just isn't true. Okay. According to Pat Raphael of the West Bank First Nation, a, a member nation of the larger Okanagan Nation Alliance, the demonic view of the Nyitaka came about through miscommunication between Canada's early Europeans, European. early European settlers and the Okanagan people. Okay. So to the Okanagan people, it's Nahahaitaku, right? So mm-hmm. it's a sacred spirit of the lake that protects the valley and to them the spirits it's like very dark in color and it's got the head of a horse and the antlers of a deer the spirit was said to dwell in the caves underneath rattlesnake island or some people call it monster island or adjacent to squally point and the idea that there was a sacrifice also not true according to Coralie miller a member of the west bank first nation and assistant manager at the heritage museum in west Kelowna, the okanagan uh, fed the spirit symbolically with tobacco and sage and occasionally an offering of salmon to thank the lake for providing food and water and she thinks that's where the misunderstanding came from settlers saw them throw a bit of meat in the water and assumed it was like a sacrifice instead of an offering yeah so to Coralie Miller the Nahaha Itku and the Ogopogo are two separate entities and shouldn't be conflated one of the museum's missions is to tell the story of the area's indigenous people and to talk about the importance of the Nahaha Itku mm-hmm. in protecting the lake. It's part of what she calls deprogramming, uh, which is basically just questioning or deconstructing the colonial perspective on local history and culture, which she said is an important step towards reconciliation and ongoing countrywide process of establishing and maintaining respectful relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. So here are some sightings of Ogopogo. There were literally so many that I could not include them all. So I had to choose the most detailed ones or the most interesting ones because there were literally... it seemed like every year there was a sighting oh really yeah it a lot there the website ogopogoquest.com has all of the sightings and it's literally like a lot so susan allison's 1872 sighting was the first detailed ogopogo account from a white settler she is said to be the first non-native person to live in the region, and she describes seeing a snake-like creature in the water on a stormy night near her home, um, Sunnyside Ranch, which is the location of today's Quail Gate Winery in West Kelowna. Okay. It doesn't get more descriptive than that, though. Some of these are very short. Some of them are longer, just random. In 1947, a number of boaters all saw the creature at the same time. One of the witnesses, Mr. Cray, gave a detailed description saying it had a long, sinuous body, 30 feet in length, consisting about five undulations, apparently separated from each other, about a two-foot space in which that part of the undulations would have been underwater. There appeared to be a forked tail of which only one half came above water. From time to time, the whole thing submerged and came up again. So I'm thinking it means like this. Yeah, like the wavy yeah. wave. Like um, like those cute little concrete things you see from like the concrete lady. I just, who used the, the word, un- who uses the word undulating? I know, 
that's I, that's what you keep getting me caught up on is undulating undulations, undulations. <laughs> in 1959 mr and mrs rh miller and mr and miss pat martin reported seeing a tremendous creature with a snake-like head and a blunt nose swimming some 250 feet behind their motorboat and the whole group saw it and watched it for over three minutes until it submerged nice. which i think is interesting because in other descriptions it has horse or sheep or whatever head but you know i can kind of i can kind of see where the combination of like horse sheep goat snake dragon water dragon dragon. might be similar so yeah i I guess i guess yeah (laughs) while driving on highway 97 in 1968 Art Folden noticed something moving in the lake. He pulled off the road and filmed what he claimed to be footage of the alleged creature showing a large wave moving across the water. Um, Folden Folden estimated that the Ogopogo was 300 yards offshore. He He noticed something large and lifelike in the distance out on the calm water and pulled out his home movie camera to capture the object. A 2005 investigation conducted by Benjamin Radford with Joe Nickel and John Kirk for the National Geographic Channel um, TV show, Is It Real?, used surveyor boats to find the actual distance of the alleged creature from the shore, and they found it was a lot closer than originally thought, meaning that it was probably a lot smaller and a lot slower. Okay. They concluded it was probably a real animal, but the size was just greatly overestimated and it was probably like a waterfowl or otter or beaver that was too far away to be identified Mm -hmm. apparently in another um investigation a computer analysis of the footage concluded that it was a solid three-dimensional object okay and that's all that it got (laughs) so it's a three-dimensional object three-dimensional all i'm object solid Yes. yes gotcha in 1978, Bill Stasiuk was crossing the bridge from the west side of Okanagan Lake in October of 1978 towards Kelowna. He caught a movement in the lake and immediately stopped his car, which meant that all the traffic behind him also stopped. Okay. And he, everybody was like, why is this guy getting out of his car to go look over the rail? And then 20 other people did too and they all saw what appeared to be like a, th- a head with three black humps behind it like 60 meters away coming out of the water mm-hmm. and they all watched this creature sort of swimming for nearly a minute until it disappeared and this sighting made a believer out of bill and he vowed to one day search for ogopogo oh that's kind of cute in the 80s, a local tourism agency offered a cash reward for proven sighting of the beast. Greenpeace announced that the beast must be filmed and not captured, and the Ogopogo was listed as an endangered species. Oh, I so. remember. For some reason, I remember It sounds that, familiar, like, yeah. Yeah. In 1980, around 50 tourists watched an alleged Ogopogo for about 45 minutes off a beach at Kelowna. Larry Thal, a tourist from Vancouver, shot Something. some film for about 10 seconds, mm-hmm. and some skeptics have suggested that it was just a pair of otters. 
1989, John Kirk reportedly saw an animal that was about 35 to 40 feet long and considered consisted of five sleek jet black humps with a lashing tail. He, he believed it to be traveling at around 25 miles per hour. This one is actually a 1986 sighting reported to ogopogoquest.com in the summer of 2018. They hadn't reported the story publicly because they said it was too unbelievable. Oh, too unbelievable. <laughs> sure. In late July of 1986, this guy was paddling anew near Ellison Provincial Park with their two girls and they were trying to get fish. They were yeah. about eight and 10 years old at this time since it was dusk and the stars were beginning to be visible they started to head toward the dog beach at ellison to head back to camp and it was a warm night and the lake was like really smooth like really calm and quiet like no boats on the lake at all they were about 100 meters out from the beach when they noticed a round object on the water that wasn't moving and thinking it was like a toy or something or like an inner tube they tried to they decided to paddle over and mm-hmm. investigate it. And as they approached, the first thing they noticed was a strong fishy smell. <laughs> okay. And when the bow of the canoe was within a meter or so of the object, they noticed it was about one foot wide by four feet long and had two rows of like arrowhead shaped scales running down it. Yeah. It was dark green in color and they sat there for a few seconds before he told the kids like reel in your lines we gotta go (laughs) and then they heard like a low like moaning or growling noise and they realized that about five to ten meters further ahead there was a large head facing away from them oh no the the head appeared to be like the size of a horse and it had horizontal like conical shaped structure like horns and the kids turned away turned to ask what it was and the dad was like ogopogo and he it like finally clicked what was going on and he just like what and the older daughter freaked out and demanded that they leave which why was she the one who had to tell you to go dude yeah Uh, so so the creature appeared to notice that they were there and slowly moved away and it's it moved slowly with the head and the hump in the same position and its movement seemed consistent i know yeah it's really it, weird like it, doesn't it is just that, do i the... feel like that wouldn't yeah i feel like it would go like that not yeah and, like it would like have the actual movement yeah. of the body because you have to propel the water exactly sensor. you can't just drift. it's not like you're in one singular shape and then back here there's a propeller like <laughs> but so, see that makes me question whether or not it's like a log or something because if it's not doing a movement right and then that's what makes it even more confusing because if there was an actual head that they saw yeah that's weird but it he said that its movement seemed consistent with the idea of a large body under the water and a long folding neck but like we said if it was it would have been moving up and down yeah. you would have seen that movement and after moving off about 50 meters, it turned as if to take a look at them and then went back underwater. The whole incident lasted about like two minutes and they did have a camera in the boat, but they were too shocked to think of trying to use it. Too shocked. Yeah. There were six sightings in 2000 alone. Wow. One of which was by, um, I know, 
like if you look at this ogopogoquest.com they have so many sightings it's crazy so one of them in 2000 was a marathon swimmer daryl ellis who reported being accompanied for a short distance during his swim by two large creatures as he passed rattlesnake island two he described them as being six to nine meters long and the second which is 20 to 30 feet yeah and the second being a little smaller they followed him for quite a while and then disappeared and when he swam near the okanagan lake floating bridge in Kelowna, a creature with a large eye the size of a grapefruit came within nine meters to get a close look at him and this was actually painted by a local artist with police sketch training and that's one of the things i want to show you wow it's okay. not even i look at that that's oh, wow. the yeah that's what he said he saw i wouldn't say that's grapefruit sized well um... also i don't know that might be grapefruit size. I don't know the. Be. I feel like the head would that would be different though. Yeah, if it if it truly was grapefruit size, the head would have more of a. Um... And this thing doesn't have horns like some other ones did, and yeah. some of them don't have horns. And it, that's part of the thing that is just kind of weird to me, is like the variation in mm-hmm. the description. But when it comes to cryptids, there really do tend to be um, some variations in how they are seen. Yeah. So while fim- filming a documentary on Ogopogo in 2002, a film crew consisting of 14 people, including that Bill Stessia guy, the one who said he was going to investigate him eventually, yeah. all saw what it looked like two or three humps undulating in and out of the water at almost the same spot where he had first sighted it first sighted what he thought to be Ogopogo over 24 years before which is pretty cool I don't know if you can find the documentary anywhere I didn't look but okay a guy named Jeremy wrote to the legend hunters to tell which is what the Ogopogo website calls themselves legend hunters the legend hunters okay to tell them that his grandparents actually saw the creature in 2003 and it was around 12 30 p.m to 1 p.m and it was a clear like blue sky day because his parents never go out on a cloudy day because his grandma's afraid of storms oh and they were in their boat and suddenly a long black object with humps swam by them and it swam so fast that the boat started to rock really really badly oh no the parents were pretty freaked out so they drove off but then what seemed like two creatures started to follow them and actually bumped into the boat and after a few moments, the creatures left and it was just still. And there were like five other people who could confirm the story. They didn't bump into the boat. They were guiding the boat. Sure. They were just using their bodies to put to point the boat in the correct direction. I mean, mm-hmm. understandable. Sure. Yeah. August 5th, 2003, Steve Lavallee, a DJ with CKLZ Power 104, wrote that he and seven of his friends were on a rented boat celebrating his 25th birthday. And they weren't that far from Bear Creek Park around early early afternoon. They stopped to swim um, near the middle of the lake when he noticed three waves moving through the water. It looked like humps, almost like when a river goes over a big boulder with a like V-shape almost at the beginning. Uh, yeah, no, I know what you mean now. Okay. okay. Yeah. 
they were like waves but not going in a straight line they were sort of moving in a zigzag sort mm-hmm. of fashion and very fast and almost as a joke he was like hey it's ogopogo look and then oh everyone God. else saw it including his cousin who took a picture with this phone but they didn't include it here so i don't know i don't know mm-hmm. um that's weird the two people who were swimming got back in the boat and decided to chase it but it was way too fast and they they said they were in a pretty fast boat and it was still hard to keep up with the weird waves they seemed to slow down after about five minutes and then they caught up and at that time he saw like what appeared to be three or four of the exact same objects all around the same area zigzagging around and he didn't know what to think and thought it was <laughs> he was like it's got to be some sort of unexplained like natural phenomenon but really weird and that he didn't know what it was but it was something yeah he also said that the hump measured about like two and a half feet high and oh, three feet wide that's pretty high for yeah. like water to just be going over it typically with that height right. it would go around it not which would make me think that it would have to blend in with the water to make it look yeah. like that yeah. i don't know i would agree um, there's a bit of a break between 2006 and 2014 with like one sighting that I could find in between in 2011 that was basically disproved as being a log. Mm-hmm. In 2014, Jeff Cottom was taking pictures of the lake when he saw something come out of the lake, wriggle and shake his head. He said it looked to be a sea lion or a snake that, about a foot long and it was black and shiny and had a long body, at least 10 or 12 feet long or, or more. That's all he could see above the surface. But it was moving swiftly without any sign of a tail or movement in the body. And he assumed there was more body and tail below the water. I do have to say, seal and snake are two completely completely different different things. Completely different. Yeah. But like, this is what he saw. Um, That's one of the two pictures he was able to take. I can tell you what that is. That is one of those geese going down and getting fish. Well, that's the thing, though, is he said he was looking at it for a while and that it didn't move. I mean, that it was moving consistently and that it didn't like like that, which is why a lot of the time it's you would think it's definitely like a geese because a there's two right there. Yeah. And geese tend to go in flocks. So. Right. But he said that he was looking at it for a couple of like a while and that it was just moving like that and it was very long and but no I'm still only seeing a goose (laughs) right and it was like even if it wasn't a goose the only thing I could think is that looks slightly like an alligator head which there aren't any alligators slightly very slightly I couldn't really exactly I couldn't see anything else out of that so this series of photos was taken on May 24th, 2015 at around 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. while Bill Stisiak was sitting on the balcony of his Kelowna condo facing Lake Okanagan. The subject popped up out of the water about 200 meters from shore. Bill grabbed his camera and took a series of pictures and the object stayed in the same spot for almost a full minute, oh. rotating its head as if looking around and at the end he it jumped out of the water displaying its head and a portion of its neck before diving and disappearing beneath the water 
Okay. So, okay. You see this little dude right here? <laughs> okay. Um. So, yeah. And he said that um. was out for a couple of minutes, was moving around, and then went like that. Um. I... <laughs> <clears throat> what do I even describe that as? It Ooh. looks like, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like a blurry picture of um a submarine scope yes um but more rounded yes it does but they got this from marlene is all it says that they were watching a documentary about the ogopogo saying it it was sighted close to rattlesnake island and they were looking on google earth and they saw this Mm -hmm. Mm. which there's no way that is a picture on Google Earth. There's a thing no. down at the bottom that says right there that it's Google, but I just can't well, believe that. And it might be, but I don't know. Does Google really have boats? Right. And I don't think they would be in a lake. That makes zero sense to me. Yeah. But whatever. Whatever. Moving on. Moving um, on. There were, in September of 2018, there were reportedly three sightings, one of which described the, the creature as a giant snake. It was about 50 feet long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the author that I mentioned before, Benjamin Radford, said most sightings of the creature are most likely misidentifications of waterfowl, otters, or beavers, as the First Nation stories weren't referring to a little creature, literal creature, but a water spirit. Sturgeons. We'll get there. The <laughs> main two theories are otters who swim in a row, and, and that would seemingly be continuous motion yeah. like a serpent which i'll kind of agree with but the next is sturgeon and sturgeon are often mistaken as lake monsters and yeah. white sturgeon are indigenous to other british columbia lakes including the columbia river which connects to the okanagan lake system the like via the okanagan river yeah but there were dams built in the 1920s which would block access to any spawning habitat Okay, what if they chose, like, somewhere else to spawn? Apparently, you have to have really specific conditions for spawning habitat. And I guess Lake Okanagan doesn't have it, which doesn't make sense to me. But but there's it has been proven known as evolution. That. <laughs> but no one's been able to find any sturgeon in that lake. Oh, okay then. Yeah. So they are indigenous, but there was those dams built and they can grow up to six meters, but a lot of the time they're bottom feeders and don't like to come to the surface, mm-hmm. but it's not impossible. Much like catfish. However, there are subter- apparently subterranean caves that might connect the lake to other lakes in the valley. It hasn't been proven though. And like I said, and, well, and Ogopogo has been observed in some of these other lakes, but it's said to be a lot larger than a sturgeon and... Like I said, there haven't been any surgeon found in the lake. There's actually an unclaimed $10,000 reward for concrete evidence of a sturgeon in the Okanagan Lake. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's, mm, okay. Yeah. Back in the 1800s, the apparently infamous Captain Shorts. Captain, Captain Schwartz. Yeah, maybe I wrote down the wrong name. It seems silly. Anyway, this captain discovered a large vertebrae bone in the shallows of Okanagan Lake, which were eventually determined to be from a whale. Oh, I was about to say, now, how did a whale bone get there? But then Pangea and... But yeah. I, 
that's very in the shallows seems a little bit weird but nobody's been able to like definitively figure out how it got there apparently in in 1926 30 carloads of people watched the ogopogo in the water off an okanagan mission beach but there's no description of it that i could find i don't i don't know how that ended up down here it was probably from up there yeah so Kelowna Museum's executive director, Linda Digby, said to settlers, Ogopogo was a real thing. They definitely misinterpreted what they heard from the indigenous community, had no qualms about making up their own stories and appropriating them, and it wouldn't have even occurred to them that they were doing that. Yeah. So while Ogopogo is still a huge thing in their area, like it's been really good for like tourism and stuff like that. People do like Wikipedia even has incorrect information about natives sacrificing animals for for the river monster. And yeah, when yeah. it's absolutely not true. Yeah. So that was actually it. That oh, was Ogopogo. Oh my gosh. No, yeah. that's like, so that's very similar to, what was that one? sea monster that I did it wasn't Bessie you didn't Storzy 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 yeah Yeah. okay that really reminded me of Storzy 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 yeah so much um which is funny because that was a completely different part of the world where was that that was Stockholm Sweden yeah and it's so similar and then I feel there's like a lake monster in every lake monster, a lake creature <laughs> in every, um, I feel like almost every continent in multiple places in every continent. Yes, there is. That is okay. But I did. I really love that because that just, the way that you tied it, like the notes that you have for the Native Americans and tying it into the history of it is just something. Oh, they're Canadian. Oh, the native Canadians, my bad. <laughs> the natives. Um, and tying it into, into the story of the Ogopogo, which yeah. I think I actually read about when I was doing Storzy because it was like, oh, it's similar to the Ogopogo. Right, because I it sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it because I don't I didn't remember yes. the story. So I don't know if it's been covered by somebody else, like a different it, podcast, and that's where I've heard it. And that's why we drink. Did they, though? Yes. They did? Yes, they did. What episode? Um, episode 149, titled An Unidentified Naked Object and a Girl Who Cried Jude Law. So that's why it sounds familiar to me, because of and that's why we drink. All right, I'm going to listen to that. Thank you all so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Myths Misfortune, or you can search for us using the full name Myths and Misfortunes will pop up. You can also email us at mythsandmisfortunes@gmail.com, and please check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. Our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their website can be found in the description below. Please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Yes. 
And <laughs> thanks Thank so much you for all. listening, guys. All right, bye. All right, bye. bye.